It's TechBiter Worldwide for the week of June 8th, 2008. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in far less than an hour because we leave out the sports, the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. And this week, we appear to be leaving out the website. I'm actually recording this program on Saturday afternoon. I decided to wait to see if the website problems would be resolved. As of now, they have not been. The site hasn't been hacked. At least it hasn't been hacked by the bad guys. TechBiter Worldwide is hosted by Bluehost, a web hosting organization in Orem, Utah. Uh, That name sounds familiar. It's the former home of WordPerfect. And the server that TechBiter Worldwide is on has been experiencing performance problems. Uh, Several weeks ago, I started working with the tech support folks and finally escalated the issue to level three technicians, and Bluehost agreed to migrate the site to a new box. I specifically asked that the migration be done any day but a weekend day. So, of course, that's exactly when they did it, Friday overnight. Saturday morning, no website. The files are present on the server, but the server is currently throwing what's known as a 500 error. I'm told that this may be the case until sometime on Sunday. Now, this makes absolutely no sense to me because the files are present, the DNS is resolving to the proper IP address, and everything that is needed to make the HTML part of the website work is actually present. So I'm currently trying to work my way back up the chain to a level 3 technician, but It's the weekend, so it's kind of unlikely that that'll happen. So I apologize for the problem that you saw if you tried to visit the website on Saturday. As they used to say on television, the trouble is not in your set. And that's actually kind of a good segue into this week's topic. I've probably mentioned a time or two that I don't spend a lot of time watching television, but recently I did spend some time watching high-definition TV on my computer from WOSU and other stations that broadcast in HD. The picture ranged from remarkably good to totally unwatchable. When it's good, it's excellent, because HD television offers both improved resolution and a higher contrast ratio. But when the signal is less than perfect, the image becomes pixelated, and the audio can drop out. What this means is that for digital over-the-air reception, you're going to need an outside antenna, even if you're close to a transmitter. I was using a device made by Pinnacle. It includes a small stick antenna. Think of it kind of like a single rabbit ear. Small black container about the size of a Pez box that houses the magic, a USB converter, and some software that makes everything work. So if I had to summarize the setup in just one word, the word I would pick is easy. Instead of using the provided half-a-rabbit-ear antenna, though, you can and will need to attach an external antenna. That will improve your viewing experience remarkably. But what I found surprising is that this little antenna sitting on a windowsill on the north side of a building, meaning that it's facing away from most of the signals in town, was still able to see analog signals on channel 4, 10, 17, 19, 28, 32, 34, 48, and 53. In addition, it could see the digital signals on 1041, that's WCMH, 1042, called Weather Plus, 1061, WSYX, even though for some reason I can't see the analog signal from Channel 6, 1062, called My TV, 
1101, that's the WBNS signal, 1281 WTTE, and 1341-12 and 3, WOSU's three HD signals. Also, composite signals, whatever they are, from WSYX and MyTV. WOSU's signal was acceptable on the indoor antenna, and so was the Weather Plus signal. WSYX, unusable. So was MyTV. WBNS, which I expected to have the best signal, was surprisingly bad. And WTTE, which I expected to be marginal, was marginal. The three WOSU signals were all good from my location. I'm sure that all of the signals would be much better with an outside antenna, but those are all technical problems that Pinnacle has absolutely nothing to do about. What Pinnacle can do is make the process of setting up the system easy, and that's exactly what they've done. Beyond that, TV is only the start. The device also picks up FM radio, and if you're connected to the Internet, a bunch of Internet radio stations. Pinnacle's PC TV HD Pro Stick also lets you record from the external analog sources such as a camcorder, a DVD player, or a game console via a mini USB connector. The bundled antenna is about 8 inches tall. When collapsed, it extends to around 26 inches. The magnetic base is a plus because placing the antenna, at least an antenna like this, on a large piece of metal will improve reception. That metal has to be the kind that a magnet would stick to, ferrous metal. But if you get the antenna too close to your credit card or a floppy disk, if you still have any of those lying around, you're going to have a problem. Now here's something I didn't expect, although I probably should have. If you're interrupted while watching a digital channel, just press the pause button or the pause button on the remote control. Yes, they include a remote control too. And you pause the signal. You can then resume viewing later. How long you can pause is certainly a function of how much space is available on your hard drive. Still, this is kind of a cool feature if you spend a lot of time with TV. And yes, you can record the programs too. Watch one channel, record another, then play back the recorded signal at your convenience. Keep in mind, though, HD TV signals require a lot of disk space. Bottom line, the Pinnacle PCHD Pro Stick is one pretty cool tool for anybody who spends a lot of time with their TV. You won't find anything easier to install or use, and there are lots of handy features. The program guide isn't one of them. If you'd like more information, there's a link to the Pinnacle website on the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. I'm the co-owner of an online discussion list. Now, owner is a little bit misleading in this regard. There's no revenue stream. There's really nothing to own. The owners are more like custodians. We sweep up the floor and pick up scrap paper, things like that. When a spammer started forging the list's email address, we started having a problem with AOL. Most ISPs are smart enough to block based on an IP address, not on the easily forged from address. Apparently not AOL, though. The ISP blocked list mail to all of the list's AOL subscribers. Later, I mentioned the problem online, thinking I was doing a good deed for the AOL subscribers. Instead, I was told I was dissing their service. So were others who stepped forward to explain the hard facts and personal observations that AOL either loses or discards messages without regard to the sender or the intended receiver. Facts were often met with emotional responses. 
when I wrote to one of the AOL users privately and explained again that AOL was discarding mail without telling her and explaining that I thought AOL subscribers should at least be made aware of the problems, she insisted she was receiving all of her mail and that AOL must be playing mind games with me. Another subscriber said she was glad to know what was going on but felt it was too much trouble to leave AOL. After all, she wondered how would she know if AOL was deleting messages and not telling her. Indeed. That was my point. It was about then that I ran across a quotation by H.L. Mencken. The quotation is this, The men the American public admire most extravagantly are the most daring liars. The men they detest most violently are those who try to tell them the truth. So, some of the AOL subscribers thought I was dissing them or their service. Some even accused me of calling them stupid, which I hadn't. This kind of reaction always surprises me, even though I've come to expect it from AOL users. If somebody tells you your house is on fire, it might be prudent to actually check that out. Instead, AOL users effectively just told me their house is a very, very nice house with two cats in the yard, that life used to be so hard, but now everything is easy. Apologies to Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, by the way. Well, all that's fine, but if the house is on fire, the house is on fire. At this point, I would say something like, sheesh but then I'd probably be accused of dissing them. Another subscriber asked me off-list if the problem might be that some users view computers as semi-magical devices, and indeed, that might be part of the problem. As long as these subscribers believe AOL is perfect, then AOL must be perfect. Don't give me the facts, just pass the Kool-Aid. I found once several years ago that an Internet service provider I was using at the time was deleting some of my mail without telling me. The ISP had recently been purchased by, well, yeah, AOL. I was incensed. I hadn't asked for help, and I wanted to make my own decisions, not have some vigilante employed by the ISP decide that I shouldn't see a message based on some criteria that hadn't even been communicated to me. I'm not 12 years old, and I resent having an ISP treat me as if I'm a child. So you'll note that I described that usage of that ISP in the past tense. Some of the AOL users I spoke with say they're going to stay with AOL because it's just too much trouble to leave. Well, it's not really all that difficult to change ISPs. I've changed several times. I started with CompuServe. It wasn't really an ISP at the time because at that time the Internet wasn't available to mere mortals. When the Internet began to become ubiquitous, I switched to a small local ISP, then to a larger national ISP that I could use when I was traveling. When that ISP was eventually eaten up by AOL, I moved to a cable system that was eventually eaten by AOL, and then to another cable system that has so far remained out of AOL's clutches. From a time shortly after I'd set up the account with the small local ISP, I've had my own domain, so it doesn't much matter that I've changed ISPs several times because I never used their email addresses anyway, nor does it actually matter that I've changed Internet Presence Provider several times because my address remains exactly the same. So if you've got an ISP that you don't like and you're ready to pitch the Kool-Aid, whichever brand of Kool-Aid it is, Take a look at the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. You'll find some information specifically about how to get out of an AOL account, but most of that information also applies to other ISPs if you're unhappy with the one you're working with. It was the best of spams. It was the worst of spams. Apologies to Charles Dickens this time.
In looking at the spam slop bucket this week, I spotted a couple of spams that have absolutely nothing in common, but I thought them worth commenting about. One is a fraudulent tax refund. I think I've mentioned one of these before, but this one had some good features and some bad features. First of all, it was a fairly reasonable forged address that the message claimed to have come from. Mail ID 51190 at taxrefund7696.irs.gov. That was, of course, forged. It didn't really come from there. And also, they included in the document an IP address, the IP address that they wanted to send me to, but they made it look like a document number. Now, that's kind of clever. You might expect a document number from the IRS. However, there was no addressee, so it had obviously been blind copied. The IRS wouldn't do that, even if they sent refund notices by email, which, of course, they don't. The message started with Dear Taxpayer. Now, in this case, they would undoubtedly call me by name. And there was no social security number. So I took a quick look. What was this IP address that they wanted me to go to? Well, it was registered to the Taiwan Fixed Network Company Limited in Taipei. And again, I'm fairly certain the IRS hasn't outsourced to Taipei. And then there was this one. How to develop a business plan, the message asked me. It was speaking in Russian. It then went on to pitch a class that will be held in Russia on the 9th and 10th of June. Uh, take a look at the calendar here. I received the message on June 3rd, so obtaining a visa and the necessary airline tickets and reservations at the, some hotel in Russia might be a bit of a challenge between then and the 9th and 10th of June. Besides, I don't really speak Russian all that well, besides being able to accuse somebody of stealing a pencil, asking if they're a spy, or telling them that they're not allowed to sleep in the park of culture and rest. I'm pretty much lost in Russian. Each participant, the message told me, will be trained on complex software for routine activities. Now, that seems a little backwards. I mean, why would you want complex software for routine activities? But the promoters promised they would broaden my knowledge of economic planning and that they would provide professional skills in the development of an economic model to help me fully understand the whole process of planning, preparation of documentation, and the use of professional graphic presentation. Oh, I get it. They want to teach me how to use PowerPoint in Russian. I'll pass. In nerdly news, Linux has an Acer in the hole. PC and component maker Acer says Linux is in your future. The company will start marketing Linux on its laptops and notebooks, in part because of the lower total cost of ownership. Linux is the operating system that Acer selected for its line of low-cost, small, portable notebooks that are currently in development. But Linux will be the operating system of choice, or at least an option, for some of the higher-end machines, too. Now, at the low end, Linux is an absolute no-brainer. If you can cut $150 to $250 from the cost of a $600 computer, you're going to sell a lot more computers. This is less important at the high end, those machines in the $2,500 to $5,000 range. But Acer has found a market for its media PC units. And Acer vice president says the company is moving toward Linux. If you've worked with Linux, you know that it boots and shuts down in 30 seconds or so versus sometimes several minutes for a Windows machine. That speed, coupled with the lower cost, can tip the scales in favor of Linux. 
And some Linux distributions handle power management a lot better, too. A friend of mine says that if he runs Windows on his notebook computer, he'll use 70% of the system's power in less than half an hour. But if he runs Linux and does the same kinds of activities, the power consumption is less than 30% after an hour. Others report that Linux can extend battery life by several times what they would expect from a Windows machine. Just one more nail in the coffin. Verizon Communications says it will buy Altel for more than $28 billion. Part of that is Verizon's assumption of Altel's debt. The acquisition will create the nation's largest cellular telephone provider. Oh, goody. Assuming regulatory approval, Verizon will become the nation's largest wireless business, beating out AT&T Wireless, Sprint Nextel, and T-Mobile, who's currently number three and will become number four. If you think you remember about Altel being purchased recently, well, you're right. TPG, once known as the Texas Pacific Group, and Goldman Sachs bought Altel in 2007. They paid $28 billion for it. Verizon and Altel have previously worked on merger deals, but they've always collapsed before fruition, in part because Vodafone owns 45% of the business and didn't really like the deal. Well, the current deal is being financed entirely by debt to avoid diluting Vodafone's stake, according to the New York Times, and that makes it acceptable. Altel has about 13 million customers, uses the same technology Verizon does. That's a plus. Most of Altel's subscribers are in areas not served by Verizon. Another plus. And that's it for this week. Hopefully the website will be back soon. In fact, if you're listening to this, it is back. Thanks for listening. This has been TechBiter Worldwide for the week of June 8, 2008. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com, and you can send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.